0: morning everyone another beautiful day to be able to come and uh and honor God together uh there's uh, something i Mark mentioned is uh Steve Diggs is going to be here uh, he does the seminars no debt no sweat and, and Mark shared that some of you have ha- have seen him speak before but it's just a great it's a great opportunity for us to come together and to be able to um, uh, receive some training and instruction on where our heart is at you know that's where our wealth ends up and um and honoring God with what we have, and uh, especially if you're if you're older, you've already blown it. There's no hope for you. But come anyway. No, I'm kidding. I'm just messing around. But if you're on the younger side of the scale, learning some of the, or the younger side of the spectrum, learning some of these principles, young makes all the difference in the world for uh, the freedom and the opportunities that God uh, provides as you go along in life. And so that'll start next Sunday during our, our morning time, and then Sunday evening and Monday evening, he's going to be around to share as well. And this is something that you can invite friends to. Uh, we're planning on publishing it on Facebook, and uh, it's a great opportunity to be, for us to be able to uh, to learn some great things and receive some instruction that we, we wouldn't otherwise. And so next week, that all starts, and there will be some clock notes and Facebook reminders going out giving more details as well. Here over the last few weeks, I've been spending some time with the question, is there really a God out there, and I know that I was given the opportunity yesterday with my two children to ski at Bridger Bowl after a big snowstorm, and I can tell you that yes, there is definitely God out there, and it was amazing, it was wonderful. But we spent some time talking about the, over the last weeks the fingerprints of God that we can see out there in nature, and you just can't help but look around and say, "Boy, there's something there," or "There's something deep inside of us says." man, there's something that's there. There's got to be something more than just this accident that happens here. And we spent some time last week talking about when we look at ourselves, we see this moral obligation that even from childhood out on the playground, we have the tendency to say that's not fair and we're appealing to this moral obligation that is bigger than us somehow. And we can't seem to get away from it. And even if people do not acknowledge the existence of God whatsoever, it seems that there is deep within them this desire to demand that right is done and demand that people are treated well. And when societies don't, the rest of the world responds and says, no, you can't do that. You can't treat people that way. And deep inside somewhere, that's a fingerprint of God telling us, I'm here. You're created in my image. I want you to look for me. I want you to find me. We're going to get in the next weeks a little deeper into the second question. And the question is, okay, if there's something there... Why am I a Christian? And there's a lot of questions I'm not going to address here on Sunday morning, but there's some are, and some of them that have been uh, great for me to wrestle through personally. And again, a few weeks ago I gave you uh, some, some other resources that you're welcome to go and look over. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, there's a book that I, I have here. Let me, actually, let me show it to you. Um, some of, a lot of what I, I gather today is, is from an outline that he gives but Timothy Keller, The Reason for God. It's a great book to be able to wrestle through if, you, uh, if your mind keeps getting in the way of your faith in some way. Uh, he addresses some things that are really beneficial there. If we're asking the question, why am I a Christian? I'm going to back up and make an observation. And I think this is something that we can probably all agree with. Is the world around us is a mess. Right? The world around us Is a mess. I've shared that when I was in Albania, uh, there's a missionary that I worked with that he, as we were sitting in a side uh, street cafe looking around at the uh, bullet holes that were in walls and the craters made by bombs from the Civil War a few years before that, he said, I understand how someone in this world that I'm living in right here can wrestle with, does God exist? But I don't know how anybody can wrestle with, does Satan exist? Because I see his fingerprints everywhere. And the war that happened here. And uh, and we can see that. We can identify with that. Because there's a lot of darkness in our world. There's a lot of bad that's out there. But H.G. Wells wrote this quote. And I'm going to read it for you. How many of you know who H.G. Wells is? Hey, you are familiar with his material? He wrote The War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, Time Machine. He's famous for being the Shakespeare of fiction material or science fiction material. And this is what he had to say in 1937. He said, can we doubt that presently our race will be will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know of, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. 1937, From England, H.G. Wells looks around and says, look at all the things that we've accomplished, and this is just the beginning. It's going to get better and better. It's going to get greater and greater. Look how bright the future is. You see what's coming, right? 1946. This is shortly before he passes away. He passes away in 1946. He has to say, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture... Mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. World War II happened. The Battle of Britain happened. And it broke H.G. Wells' heart to see that he had had so much hope for the human race. But what happened at the end of his life... Had absolutely devastated him and broke his heart, saying, Boy, maybe we're not all we're cracked up to be. Our world is indeed a mess. And if we look back through history, it seems that that's kind of what we wrestle with, right? We do okay for a while, things seem to go peacefully for a while, and then everything just kind of breaks loose, and there's this uh, great mess, and we have to look around thinking, What on earth am I going to do here, and how am I going to respond or answer to any of this? No matter how hard we want to maybe shift the blame somewhere else, we can't help but think that we, all of us, every one of us here, and I'm pointing back to myself as well, are really part of the problem. Because we tend to create problems. We tend to uh, uh, then uh, refuse to own it. And we wrestle with that. I'm going to read something that I found helpful here uh, this week. From a guy named Andrew Del Banco, and he was working on some research, and he was visiting AA meetings across the country. And this is what, I'll read the story here and his quote about it. He says, One Saturday morning in a New York City church basement, he was listening to a crisply dressed young man who seemed to have everything together, who was talking about his problems. In his narrative, he was absolutely faultless. All the mistakes that he had made were a result of someone else doing something. And it was clear that the young man was trapped in his need to justify himself and that things could only get worse and worse in his life until he recognized this. While he was speaking, a huge African-American man in his 40s in dreadlocks and dark glasses leaned over to Del Blanco and said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. And Delbanco writes later, he says, This was more than a good line. For me, it was the moment I understood in a new way the religion I had claimed to know something about. As a speaker bombarded us with phrases like, Got to get control of my life, and I've got to really believe in myself. The man beside me took refuge in the old Christian doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. If we're prideful, we don't have hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that he learned no one can save himself by dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself without knowing it. And there's something to that, is that we find ourselves that even when we don't realize it and we don't acknowledge it and won't own it, that we very much are part of the problem. ...of the fallen world we live in, right? How many of you have gone through life... ...and no matter what happens, everything you do, everything you say... ...has built up and built unity and built peace among the people around you? Don't raise your hand. Because if you do, you have to come forward and confess immediately, right? That's how it works. As we all know it, we all are part of the problem. But maybe our tendency sometimes is to point to somebody else... ...who seems like they're more of a problem at some point in time... ...but the reality is is that all of us are part of the problem... But here's something that is somewhat good news, if we can share it that way, is that there is a problem and even a blessing to being a sinner. Because when we look around and say, all right, this world is a mess that we live in, and I'm part of the problem, what happens is we start to be able to find that there is a solution out there that we can be a part of when we admit that, that I am very much a part of the problem of things not going right in the world around me. So let's uh, take some time here and let's look at something here that I, I find uh, I found very helpful. Is we're going to talk about sin today, and we're not going to talk about what we often talk about—the easy definition of sin is don't do this, don't do that. Okay, because it's really easy to define that. If we talk about sin in terms of saying swear words, if you don't say a swear word, you're fine, but if you say a swear word, then you're not, right? It's pretty cut and dried. It's pretty black and white. It's pretty easy to understand that. When we talk about sin just in terms of sexual immorality, if a person is involved with someone they're not supposed to be, then that's wrong, and if they're not, they're fine, they're good, they're clear, right? But what we understand from Scripture is that the definition of sin goes much, much deeper than that. And if we never get deeper, then don't do this then we don't get into where our heart is really at. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, and this is as God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, the ten plagues, they cross the Red Sea, they come to Mount Sinai, and God approaches and gives Moses the Ten Commandments and says, this is what I want the people to look like. This is just the foundations, the basics. And the first one, he says... You shall have no other gods before me. Before he even talks about making images, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I think it's easy to look at this definition and say, oh, okay, sure, no other gods before me. That applied to them back at that point in time because there was all these different false gods that were around and idols. And since we don't do that today, we can just blow by this into our next thing. Next, okay, Chris, what's up next? But I think we should slow down and we should think about this maybe a little deeper. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. These are some definitions from some various people that talk about what this means, having no other gods before me. is that we end up sinning when we try to find ourselves apart from God. In other words, find happiness, find fulfillment, all that kind of stuff on my own, out of my own efforts, instead of just relying on God to provide those things. Or... Making the good things the ultimate things. Things that are very good, but I put them in the place of God instead of leaving God where he needs to be. Or, in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. In other words, trying to put up a false front to God and say, well, I'm I'm good, I'm I'm sad, it's all right, I'm fine, all that sort of thing. And if we stop and think about this for a little bit, I think we can see something here that is maybe much closer to our heart or much deeper than our heart than we may have anticipated. How many of you have read the book by uh, Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People? Okay. Some of us read that book. It's a really, really fascinating book. It's a great read. But you remember what he says there is that more than money and more than anything else, what people want is for their lives to have meaning, for their lives to matter. Now think about the uh, quote from Rocky, if, you ever, if you've ever watched those movies, where Rocky's girlfriend, fiance, is asking him, why do you do this? Why do you fight all of these rounds and try to remain standing all the way to the end? And his response is, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. You see what's happening here? He's, he's trying to find himself apart from God. He's making the good things the ultimate things, and in despair, his own hurt, not wanting to be himself before God. We do this kind of stuff all the time. In fact, there's a great example of this that we see in uh, the very beginning, the cosmic consequences of making good things the ultimate things. Because there's a lot of good things in this world that God's created, but we can make them the ultimate things, and ultimately what we're doing is we're placing another God before the God who created us. So think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, 31, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And this is after he'd created mankind. But you can imagine God stepping back and looking at this wonderful creation where everything is working together, where everything is beautiful, and life is in harmony. The Hebrew term is shalom. We uh, translate that piece in English language, and we miss some of what is meant by that because it means full, harmonious, flowing, a joyous life, all of it together. Now we can, we oftentimes define peace as the absence of conflict. So think about it in the family conflict, or for the family life. If there's conflict happening within a family, we can find peace by each one of us going to our separate rooms, right, and not talking. And there's peace, and it's quiet. But shalom is something different. Shalom is the family coming together, working through their differences and sitting at the table and living in harmony together. That's very different than just the absence of conflict, right? And so what we see is when God created the world, there's this peaceful shalom of all of creation and everything's working and going, uh, going along just, just smoothly. And then we get to chapter 3, and you're welcome to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read some of what happens here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Boy, this God just doesn't want you to have any fun. He says you can't eat from anything. You can't do anything. You're grounded. You have to stay home all the time, right? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from trees in the garden. But God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that was in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who is with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And if you continue on with that story, God approaches them and says, What have you done? And I'm going to go back to the previous slide here. It Adam and Eve were trying to find themselves apart from God, trying to find happiness or whatever, wisdom, apart from seeking it through God making good things, all this good creation that God had made, the ultimate things, and in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Instead of saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to check with this. I'm going to go talk to God about this and see if this is the case. I want to see what's really happening here. But you see, very from the very earliest times, the first commandment that God gives later is you shall have no other gods before me, is this is the thing that will trip us up over and over and over again. It doesn't have to be an idol that sits up in front of us. But there's gods that are around us all over the place. Anything that is good that we make the ultimate. Let's look at uh, a little closer to home here. And um, maybe when we talk about social consequences, and I've got some things I'll read here as well that I found helpful this week, is that if I look at good things in this life, uh, for example, I look at my family that I'm really excited about, and I'm really thankful for, and I make my family the ultimate thing, what happens socially in uh, the, pe- the world around me is that I start to care much less for anybody else that is out there. And my family's own personal comfort becomes what is up top here, something that is good that becomes ultimate. And so when anybody uh, gets near my family or my family experiences any type of hurt, boy, I bring down the hammer on that. And I don't care about whatever may happen to the other family or anybody else because my family is most important. If I look at my nation or my tribe or my race, and I really, really love that above and beyond God, what happens is I start to not care what happens to anybody else that doesn't look like me or is like me. If you look at, um, I don't know how many of you get the Christian Chronicle, some of you here, if you look at the front page here of this last Christian Chronicle, I know that someone in the church sent me a, a, an electronic copy of it and said, "You should read this. This is really amazing." There's the whole article is about flags, faith, and fury, and national or Christian nationalism, and how when we put nation above God, what happens, and uh, how we tend to respond in life. Uh, If I go further, just my own individual happiness, if that is something that is good and fine, but that becomes the ultimate for me, that becomes God, what happens is, I don't care what happens to everybody else, I'm going to do whatever I want that I need in order to be happy at this moment in time. The ultimate selfishness is what takes over in my heart. Or personal piety, if I look around and say, you know, I am open-minded, Uh, or I am rational, or I have a high moral standard, or something like that, and that's how I view myself, what happens is that when anybody doesn't look the way I think they should, then I cannot tolerate others. And I become what we would call a Pharisee today. You see what's happening here? is that whenever we get ourselves in a situation where we put something, concept, view of self, whatever it is, over and above God, then everything just turns into this big, giant mess. Here's something else that I want to read to you that I found helpful this week. It is uh, talking about the social consequences of sin. And this is written in 1947, so right after World War II, by a lady named Dorothy Sayers. And she's British, and she wrote a book called Creed or Chaos?, and this is what she has to say. She said the people, speaking about after World War II, that, uh, how people have responded. She said the people who are most discouraged, she wrote, are those who cling to an optimistic belief that civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. So those people that have wrestled the most are the ones that thought that we as people were just going to do great. To them, the genocide and totalitarian states... And the greed and selfishness of society are not merely shocking and alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they have believed. It is as though the bottom has dropped out of their universe. Remember the H.G. Wells quote? I have no hope any more whatsoever. But for Christians, however we are accustomed to the idea that there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of human personality. In other words, the people after World War II that seemed to wrestle the most are the ones that really believed that humans could fix everything. And it was the Christians that looked around and said, yeah, this is a mess, but we understand why it's a mess. It's because we got, made the good things, things that could be good, and made them the ultimate. And see what happened is all this mess came out of it. Of course it is. Of course things uh, were a mess. Of course things blown up. because. But that's what we expect, isn't it? Isn't that what we anticipate? Because in a fallen world, those are the things that are going to happen. And so as the Christian perspective allows us to cope and to deal with when things don't go well in life, things don't go as we anticipate, it gives us a, flat, a platform to be able to see that because as humans we're fallen, Of course we're going to expect things to go sideways at times. Well, let's move even closer to home here, beyond our social consequences. But making good things the ultimate things, think about this. The personal consequences that happen right close to us personally, within our heart. And there's Augustine, who lived a long time ago, said, when our loves are not rightly ordered, this is what happens. In other words, the things that we love, when they're not in the right order, things get all out of whack. And here's some examples. Let's think about this list of uh, things that we can share here as well. Um, what about if my, I have in my own head, in my own heart, that I think, okay, I know that I'm, and I'm just giving examples here, okay, I know that I'm a wonderful parent and I know that uh, I do things right and I'm really proud of my parenting skills, I put this little God very subtly up there as something that is good, that I make an ultimate. And I just know that things are going to go right. And what happens if, as my kids grow up, that as God gives them free will, they choose to follow something else and make decisions that are displeasing to me, what happens is my whole world falls apart. It's like everything out from under me crashes and falls away. Or what happens if I... am um, take great pride in my family and how uh, my family operates and the great relationship that my wife and I have, or whatever it was. You fill in the blank. And things start looking like they're not going to go as I anticipate. My world can fall out from under me. Or what happens if I'm single and I think, boy, if life would be just great if I just found a spouse, if I just got married, or something like that. If things don't go as you anticipate, then the whole bottom falls out of your world. I remember a number of years ago, and there's a story in something I read that reminded me of this interaction, is that over a matter of a few weeks, there was a few uh, families that I knew uh, that were really struggling in their in their marriages and their relationships. And I remember I talked to um, a spouse of each one of these, and I remember talking to uh, uh, one in, in saying, hey, uh, I really, I encourage you to not give up. I, I, I know that things are tough right now, but I believe that this is salvageable. I believe that this is workable. I believe that things can go well. And I said the same thing to both of them. And one had been a Christian a long time and, and uh, had a, a lot of experience walking with God, and the other had not. And what shocked me about the responses of each of them is the one that had been a Christian a long time, responded by saying, how dare you say something like that to me? My family is not going as I anticipate, and I'm mad about it, and I will have my way. Things did not turn out well there. But the other that had been a Christian not very long said, I'm going to pray about this, I'm going to humble myself, and I appreciate you speaking the truth to me. And their marriage was put together and continued on. you see what happened here, though? Is the person that had been a Christian a very, very long time had something very subtle happening in their life. Is they didn't realize that they had set up these unmet expector- these expectations that were impossible to meet and had made something that was very good ultimate and it destroyed their life. Because this is why God says, don't put any other gods before me. Don't make things that are good things that are ultimate. Or if we look at uh, personal freedom or independence, man, somebody messes with that, we can throw an absolute hissy fit. Oh man, you know, what, on whatever level—personal, national, whatever it may be—boy, we just we 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 get all up uh, tangled up because maybe we're making something that is good, something that is ultimate. Or think about this: this is from the perspective of, uh, of romantic relationships, and w- we do this a lot in our world as Americans. Is and if I. The relationship that I'm in is, boy, that's just great and that's going to fulfill all my needs. No human relationship can bear this burden of the Godhood. If your partner is all, is your all, then any shortcoming in him or her becomes a major threat to you. What is it? That what, it is, what is it that we want to, when we elevate uh, the love partner to this position, we want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness, to know our existence has not been in vain, and we want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, humans cannot achieve this. In our own relationships, we cannot be God to each other. Ultimately, uh, things fall apart when we try to navigate life that way. Or think about it, here's another one. In terms of our work and our career, uh, hopefully we're learning this as Americans and maybe it'll take some time and no, we probably won't learn it. We're going to wrestle with it and we're going to keep wrestling with it because mankind has always wrestled with it. What am I thinking? Okay, this is what's going to happen. But there's a a lady named uh, Cynthia Heimel that she wrote a column in New York, uh, one of the newspapers there in uh, uh, something called the Village Voice. And she thought back of all the people that she knew in New York City before they became various movie stars or famous people. And one worked behind a makeup counter at Macy's, one worked selling tickets in movie theaters, and so on. But when they became successful, every one of them became more angry, manic, unhappy, and unstable than they had been when they were working hard to get to the top. And this is what she writes about it. That giant thing they were striving for, the fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with a the ha-ha happiness had happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them into howling insufferable people. Because they had made something that was good something that was ultimate. It never works. And God has told us this from the beginning. It doesn't work work for us what about stuff you know we can talk about that forever the stuff that we buy we think oh man this will make me happy and eventually it starts rusting out and and things don't make us as happy as we thought but you look at this when we think about making good things the ultimate things this is what leads us into a lot of addictions and despair in life and so what now? All right, Chris, great, fantastic. You left us with this, uh, okay, can't put any other gods before God. Well, this is a lot of bad news here. What am I supposed to do about it? So think about this. Here is the problem, and we need to define this clearly, is that we will, in this life, live for something. We have no choice about that. That is going to happen. We will live for something. And whatever that something is becomes the Lord of our life. You get that? Whatever that something is that we decide to live for becomes the Lord of our life. And a life that is not centered on God will ultimately lead to emptiness. Think about it in terms like this. If I, the Lord of my life, becomes a success, and I'm going to speak just from the, the perspective of ministry here, that my deep within side of me, I think, okay, success in ministry means this growing, vibrant church where there's all sorts of people that are becoming Christians or whatever else, you know, come up with a definition. And somehow, that is buried deep within me. If things don't look like they're supposed to, things don't pan out like I anticipate, the world falls out from beneath my feet and, oh no, what am I going to do? And I go into this despair again, this emptiness, right? Because that's what happens. Now think about it for yourself. Whatever... These things are that I shared up here that can become a God, something that may be very, very good, but is turned into something that is ultimate. When something like that in your life doesn't work out as you anticipate, then what? We just have emptiness. And let's not pretend for a second that this is a problem for just people who aren't Christians that are out there somewhere. Every one of us will wrestle with this, making some other God something that is good, the ultimate in our life, somehow, some way. And we probably wrestle with that every day. But even if we are completely and totally successful in everything, and every one of your dreams comes true, and every uh, idea and desire that you have for your family, for your job, for your home, whatever, is given to you, there's still always going to be something inside of you saying, this is not enough. I desire more. I'm empty, I'm something, there's something I'm missing. Even if every definition of success that you have is filled. Because, again, with us being created in the image of God, we are designed to desire God and designed to worship Him. And so here's the great blessing that I walk away from, is that we can, this is what we can do, and we have the choice. We can live for the Creator who provides the only peaceful and happy ending in this life. In other words, the restoration of Shalom, the disaster that happened when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve were trying to make something that is good the ultimate thing. What happens is God looks down and says, Hey, here's the deal. I want you to come to me. I'm going to restore this wonderful life. And I want you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And come is my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I want you to walk alongside me. All I ask is for you to be mine, and we may wrestle with that and say, "Oh, that's too much. Come on, I just want to give you part, but I don't want to give you everything. You know, that's too much." That I have to wrestle with that, and remember, the reality is is that we're going to give ourselves to something, and it's either God or it isn't. That's the choice that we have. That's very simply the choice that we have. But the great thing about living for God, and one of the great reasons I'm a Christian is that I can go through life and look like a total failure to everyone around me. Things can go terrible with my career. Things can fall apart in my life in ways that I could never imagine. And I can look, again, to the world around like a complete and total failure. And I can have the creator of the world up there saying, Hey, don't worry about all this. This is just the detailed stuff anyway. I've got you. I'm going to forgive everything and I'm going to take you into my kingdom and I'm going to restore the thing that you deeply desire within yourself because none of that was ever going to make you happy anyway. I'm going to restore something deeply inside you that you can't get anywhere else. And I'm going to bring you home to be with me in this place of great peace. Not the absence of conflict, but the fulfillment of everything that is good. And that's what I want for you. And that's really the choice that every one of us has in this life. And that's the only choice is that we will make something Lord of our life. And I really encourage you, and I appreciate your encouragement to me as well, to always make sure that the God who created us is the Lord of our life. If you'd like to become a Christian today, today's a great day to do that. Or you would like prayers of the church, you're welcome to head to the back. The elders are back there waiting to be a blessing and help you walk through whatever you may need to be walking through in life right now. We'll go into...